Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Carrie Brownstein is a musician, actor, and writer. And likely more, who knows what she'll do next? Politics? He understood me so, so well. Like, no one else understood me. You may know Brownstein from her iconic feminist punk band Slater Kinney, or her roles in the TV shows Portlandia and Transparent. She grew up on Seattle's east side. Brownstein spoke to Seattle novelist Maria Semple about growing up in the region and her new memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. The book chronicles her transition from passionate fan. For instance, about the long letters she sent to soap opera stars, she writes, A response, any response, implied that I existed, that I was not a weirdo, that I'd be okay. To empowered and famous riot girl performer. Anna Tatashev recorded this talk on November 6, 2015 at STG's Neptune Theater. Please note, this talk contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Brownstein gets right to it. She's not messing around. Hello. Hello, thanks for coming. Hi. Hello. Um, Here we go. Sometimes I read up top, but I'm not going to. We're just going to go right into the Q and yeah. right into the, our talk. This is Maria Semple. Do you know her? She's a great writer. Thank you. So I know you were in Portland last night, but let's just be clear this is your homecoming. Yes, this is my hometown. Welcome home. <laughs> Thanks. I lived in Seattle for maybe four months. I mean, I, I grew up in... No, what? I mean, I, I was born at Swedish Hospital, but I... Uh, you guys don't even know what that is. Everything's That's so close. We're just going to woo our way but through But I grew the up in the... Su- I grew up in the, on the east side. Sorry. Sorry. Uh-huh. Does it still... It still has a stigma? God. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that would be, be over by now. Um, At least Amazon isn't in, on the east side, right? We can boo that. <laughs> boo. Um, hey, so, um, so congratulations on having a best-selling memoir, Carrie. Thank you. New York Times bestseller. Thanks. Yeah. How does it feel to be so accepted in the literary world so quickly? <laughs> um, I, 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 it feels great. I don't know. It feels, uh, it's, it's a little, this whole tour has been very surreal. I, um, I married a couple the other night. Like, I mean, I didn't get married to them. I did not get married to them. The syntax is very important when you're talking yeah. about, I married someone. No, I officiated a wedding in LA spontaneously during a reading. I'm not doing that tonight. Okay. So that's off the table, everybody. Um, the memoir, I don't know how many people have had a chance to read it. It is so, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. The writing is unbelievable. And it's, um, there's so much, um, so much wisdom in it, which, which I found uh, really moving, that, that it's the only rock memoir where I wasn't disappointed that you didn't just shit talk a bunch of rock stars, uh, which is usually what I like in a rock memoir. But uh, this was very compassionate and very... Very sweet, and um, I, I'm wondering about the 
when did you get so wise? Was it um, in retrospect? Uh, like, did, did you process a lot of this stuff after the fact, or, or were you always kind of going through it as, as introspective? Uh, I, I think I've always been introspective and always been an observer <laughs> of, um, you know, awkward things. And um, <laughs> uh, But the ways that people kind of perform at personhood or the ways that couples perform couplehood or uh, people's relationship to their environment has always been very interesting to me. When, when we would be on tour and we would fly somewhere, I always was talking to the stranger in front of me as we were boarding the plane. Like, I'm just very interested in people's stories. And also, uh, during uh, Slater Kinney, I was often asked to write about the band, you know, sort of at the same time that we were in it. So I felt like I was always kind of being asked to sort of be both uh, on the periphery in a slightly objective way and then somehow marry that with my, you know, subjective take on something. And I think also as a, as a kid, I was a keen observer um, in kind of the neighborhood impresario and just trying to get a lot of things to cohere. Yeah, um, talking about your childhood, um, there's a passage here that I would like you to read um, that, that, uh, about, um, about growing up and what you were like. <laughs> okay. All right. The highlighter looks really cool in this yeah, light. Yeah, it does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, my other form of validation was through performance. Performing gave me something to do in a given moment in a room. It was a heightened way of relating to people. I could act out feeling instead of dealing with them. Few interactions didn't involve me hamming it up in some way. My sister Stacy was my first sidekick with whom I'd record radio plays or lip sync for our family using a cane as a microphone. If I was at a friend's house and needed to go home, I insisted on first performing a mock ballet, complete with my friend's ballerina outfit, despite having no dance training whatsoever. Cue Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. That would be followed by a juggling act consisting of two tennis balls and an apple to the tune of the Love and Spoonful's Summer in the City. I loved the ability to be commanding and silly, to focus and control a situation, to elevate the mundane into the theatrical. I wanted people to listen, to witness, or simply to notice me. I held people hostage with this need for attention. It was both an imposition and a plea. If the following accounts of my attention-seeking seem dizzying and unrelenting, that's because they were. I was an anxious child, prone as a baby to colic and frequent tears, and later to fist-pounding, leg-kicking tantrums. My mother likened my melodrama to the silent film actress Sarah Bernhardt, (laughs) as if my frustrations and feelings weren't normal, but calculated, contrived. Bernhardt's excuse for her theatrics was that she had no sound in her films, whereas mine was an effort to drown out an encroaching family muteness. At night, I'd wake up terrified of fire, death, and disease. The smell of toast, my mother in the kitchen and hungry at 3 a.m., wafted upstairs. Smoke signals of distress that hung over my sleep. 
I checked the pillow to make sure all my hair wasn't falling out. I researched fire escape ladders and calculated the jump from my second-story bedroom window to the nearest tree branch. I dragged my bedsheets down the hall, sneak into my parents' room, and sleep on the floor. Or I'd crawl into bed with my sister, who would wake up and kick me out. I didn't want to be alone. My brain rarely quieted. In a family video featuring an anniversary message to my grandparents, my voice never falls below the volume of an NFL coach. (laughs) I won't stop stepping into frame. I didn't want the recording to end. So what, what do you think looking back on that girl, because it obviously must have been hard to be you. Um, <laughs> certainly hard for others, it sounded like. Um, but but what, what, do, you, do you feel bad for the girl that was you, or do you feel like it got you where you are today? Oh, I definitely feel like, like it got me where, where I am today. I mean, it, it instilled in me uh, a, a desire uh, for visibility, a a desire to seek out uh, fellow misfits and performers and people who felt on the periphery. And I think um, while navigating those margins, you know, we found a center that we could hold on to. And through, you know, performance, music, creativity, uh, and eventually as you coalesce around those things, first as fans and then eventually as performers, you know, you you figure out who you are. And I think um, that sense of being an outsider and, you know, even though it felt chaotic and I was sort of trying to control the, the chaos, um, it, it really allowed for uh, a confidence and, and eventually, um, you know, like-minded people. So, yeah, I, I am I'm grateful for it in that mm-hmm. way. But, yes, I... I feel bad that, like, before, you know, there's another instance in the story or in the book where I, before I went to bed, I would insist on singing an Eagles song. And the Eagles, you know, that's not, like, an appropriate, like, they sang a lot about, like, cocaine and, you know, driving in the fast lane. And, like, I never was driving in the fast lane when I was four, you know, like, but, you know, anyway, the Eagles, great band. (laughs) I love um, the, the, the story you tell in the book about seeing George Michael um, and how that would really flip the switch for you. As, uh, what, could you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that flipped that switch for me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, George Michael at the time uh, of his Faith album. Which I loved. I, it, was, cr- I was insane for that. Everyone was insane for that Father album. Father figure. If I was Father not, my figure. life was not Oedipal enough, I would <laughs> sing that at the top of my lungs. Yeah, my Walkman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want your sex, Faith. Yeah. Um, these were, he was very sexy at the time, like, and, and to, to a lot of women. I mean, he was to lots of young girls. And um, I went to his show. I went to the Faith tour, um, I think at the Tacoma Dome. And, um, Woo! Come on, everybody. <laughs> that's a great, pl- what a great place to see a show. <laughs> so intimate and, and the sound is so good. <laughs> and um, my, my friend turned to me, she was like 13, 14 at the time. And she was like, I want to give George Michael a blowjob. And I was just like, <laughs> I was so shocked. I was just like, wow, I don't. And um, 
And I was like, you know, I would, I would much rather be the one on stage. I, I don't need you to want to do anything to me, but I would definitely rather be the one on stage than the one like lusting after, you know, a guy in leather pants. Um, you know, so that, that was a, that was a moment of, of like a light bulb went off and lots of light bulbs turned off too then. Yes. <laughs> you want to be on the other side. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so you obviously, um, w- went to Olympia to Evergreen. Come on, give it up for Evergreen. Um, <laughs> are, are you, are you doing Olympia on this tour? Are you going down there? No. Oh, sorry. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. I should know that. I, this the information I should have before I, it gets awkward. Sorry about that. No, it's um, fine. I, yeah. Now I have to go. Thank you. Yeah, okay. I, um, I'll take a bus down there tonight. Yeah, okay. I'll take a Greyhound there tonight. <laughs> um, but there's, um, you, you talk about um, seeing Bikini Kill for the first time. And... It's, it's a, in fact, there's a really, um, actually, it's Heavens to Betsy, the, what, what I want you um, to, to read from, um, is, is this section. And uh, just to, before, we, before we get to that, I, what I'm wondering is, is your, you know, you went and bought your guitar and you um, decided you wanted to be a performer. And it happened at the time when there were all these really influential, you know, punk girl bands out there, and they were um, angry. And and I'm wondering, uh, they're so pretty. Why do they have to be so angry? Um, I look back now. I, as as an old lady, I think that about these nice girls. Um, but so I um, so I I see this. I you you're very affected by this. And what I'm wondering is, do you feel like your music career? was um, a function of kind of being in the right time in the right place, that if it wasn't Heavens to Betsy, you know, would, would you have connected to it so much and wanted to go the next level? Like, as opposed to if you were seeing Nora Jones or Sarah McLaughlin, would, would you have, you know, would that have spoken to you? I'm just wondering how much of a kind of a magic moment in time was it all coming together for you? Yeah, Sarah McLaughlin d- didn't speak to me as well. She just wasn't as loud as uh, um, she's uh, she's awesome. We had Sarah McLaughlin on Portlandia. She's awesome. She's I have nothing. Um, no, I don't either. Yes, we, we both are huge yes. Sarah McLaughlin. You should see our back tattoos. It's uh, someone had to get hurt. It was Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know that's that's an interesting question, and I feel like I've never quite been able to parcel out or separate, you know, what if, you know, that kind of sliding door situation. I, I felt very fortunate that um, despite being in proximity to w- wonderful um, music in Seattle, it wasn't until somebody pointed out uh, these these bands coming out of Olympia, uh, like you said, Bikini Kill, Heaven's Betsy, these, these labels like Kill Rock Stars that were putting out these compilations full of, you know, just this unapologetic sound, this, this narrative that as um, an fairly inarticulate teen for the first time my story was being told by someone else at a time when I didn't feel like I could tell my story yet or I didn't even know what my story was but I could hear it being broadcast back to me and that feeling of recognition uh, it can't be underestimated you know the first time you witness or hear um, your own experience sung to you I feel 
if you don't have that yet, you know, it's, there's such a longing, but it's, it's an emptiness that you don't know exists until it's sort of filled in for you. So Olympia kind of became my Mecca. I wanted to go down there for school, but I also knew that, that the city and the, the scene would be its own, um, sort of education for me. And yeah, I don't, I don't think if I hadn't heard those bands that I would have felt validated, I guess, that what I had to say, um, meant anything. Uh, you know, it was like somebody sort of carved out a territory. And so I had somewhere to go and I don't know if I would have been someone that would have gone there first. So I feel very indebted to the, to those that, that went first and sort of laid their claim there. Mm-hmm. Here, here's this, um, here's this section, um, uh, that, that's related to this. All right. This is, uh, this is me seeing heavens to Betsy. <clears throat> they took themselves seriously, too. It was a strident show. Eventually, Korn was able to bring her sense of humor about the world and about herself into her music. But when you're part of an early movement, like she was with Riot Girl, where she had to create a space for herself and for her audience, where every show felt like a statement, where before you could play and sing, you had to construct a room, one you'd be respected in, wouldn't get hurt in, a space that allowed for even or even acknowledged stories that hadn't been told before about sexual assault, sexism, homophobia, and racism. And then musically, you have to tear that very space down. There's not a lot of room for joking around. There is a direness in the construction of safety, in the telling of theretofore untold stories. I was really intimidated by those Heavens to Betsy shows. I thought, these people are so cool and so not funny. I knew not to get around or make some crass, sarcastic comment because, well, these people will fuck you up. (laughs) Heavens to Betsy came across as the most serious of their peers. You stood up, you listened, and you were quiet. They were like really loud librarians. (laughs) And as the audience, you better shut the hell up because you're in the library of rock right now. See what I mean about how awesome this book is for all of you who haven't read it yet. Um, so it, it, this, that really goes right to the heart of something that it's always fascinating me about you is I've never thought that rock was that funny, that it had a lot of sense of humor about itself. And, and obviously I think you're one of the funniest writers and performers that we have right now. And um, it, it's so rare for someone to be successful in both. And, and how, what, what is the connection there to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess that ability to see the, the humor or the absurdity or the contradiction in something, even as I hold it sacred. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, um, that humor, but especially absurdity, is kind of the only way to make sense to me of something dire and serious. And I, I think about that now as, you know, anyone that looks out at uh, society or the world at large and is flummoxed by in, or pained by injustice or disorder. And sometimes it's, it's the jokes about it or the, the uh, it just, or it just feels absurd. I mean, it's so crazy that it feels absurd. So I feel like I've always been able to look at it through that lens. And then I think the other commonality is just my desire to connect with people. Mm. And I feel like both Slater Kinney and Portlandia, people feel a sense of ownership over both those things. Like they really feel a part of the narrative of both 
both entities, and that's always been uh, an important means of communication for me. Mm-hmm. And um, the and and so so Portlandia is is, is satirical. And heavens to Betsy is, uh, excuse me, if, if, if Slater Kinney is, is angry. And, and I feel like this, this book is very wise and, and, um, and, and, and reflective. Do, do, you, do you feel like you have a lot of um, different voices? Because that's what it would seem like to me. Or do you see a cohesion? Or, or do you really feel like there's one voice at work here? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like Sybil, if that's what you mean. Um, uh, You know, it's interesting because I was reading, uh, before I was working on this memoir, I was reading uh, Vivian Gornick. Gornick wrote this um, book, and the first part of it is a situation in the story, and she's talking a lot about memoir and writing. And, you know, she's saying if you know uh, who is writing, then you know why. And I, I do think that though, though there is a cohesion between um, the, the different aspects of, of my work and, and, and the different sort of entities, Slater, Kinney, Portlandia, or whatever it is, um, I felt like with the memoir that there is a, an ability, I think, to tell stories. You know, like you can, if, you know, you're thinking of your life and your memories and you can go back and um, you're placing a certain value on each one. But each story you're a multitude of selves that are, you know, you're, I could tell a story as uh, a daughter or as a musician or as a comedian. And I think that that ability to kind of utilize that multiplicity, I guess, is something that I really relish. Um, And so depending on what I'm working on, I guess there are different permutations of myself, but they don't feel... um, at odds. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a, a disconnect. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if anyone knows this, but after um, Slater Kinney broke up, you went to work in an animal shelter. And this is not a woman who does things halfway because she then became, uh, she won the Oregon Humane Society Volunteer of the Year Award. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I still have the trophy. It's a pretty amazing trophy. It was really one of the first trophies, trophy, trophies that I received, I think aside from like tennis or softball. That was, was like middle school. So this was like my first adult like award. It was amber. Yeah, I should, I should get that back out again. It's, mm-hmm. it's worth keeping. That's really impressive. Thank um, you. And, and the, there's a, a section that I did not highlight and insist. Uh, I'll describe it instead of sitting here trying to find the page, which would be awkward for everybody. But you might be able to write about it, but I will spare you. Is um, you, you talk about the, the restlessness that makes you go from, from one thing to another and, and that creatively kind of drives you, right, that you jump around. Now, you've, you've taken on so many things. Do you, do you feel like, how do you know when, you're, when it's time to stop something? I mean, you, it's obviously very dramatic. You write in the memoir about when you when Slater Kenny took a hiatus, but generally, kind of creatively, how do you know? Uh, I think, I mean, I like to stop before people are tired of you with mm-hmm. with, with entity with things like Slater Kenny. I think, despite how traumatic it was, I feel like we went out at a good time. Like people really liked that record. You know, it's better than kind of like dragging the contents of your our creativity behind you in in a hefty bag that starts 
emptying out, you know, and like all of a sudden you're just like, whoops, all the good stuff is way back behind me on the road. <clears throat> and you're asking people to still listen. I, that's, that's not what we wanted. Um, and I try to find a balance, I guess. I don't, you know, I, I like to have a, a decent work-life balance, but I'm a, I'm a pretty good multitasker, I think. Mm-hmm. I really, I really relish the, the, the restlessness. I don't like to be still for very long. Is there some whole new um, career that you want to try that you haven't given a shot yet? <laughs> I'm just curious because you became a teacher, right? You became a substitute teacher. I was teacher. a substitute teacher. Yeah, you volunteered. This is after she was a huge rock star, incidentally. Well, it was when, when, when Corin um, was pregnant with her first child. <clears throat> she called me and she said, you know, I'm going to have a baby and we're going to have to take a, a break. And I... I got like four jobs in a week. I was like, I like became an assist. I also became like an assistant to my a professor at Evergreen. I became an emergency substitute teacher, which I had to buy high heels for because everyone just thought I was a new student. <laughs> like I would, I would show up to g- these junior high classes and people be like, these young boys would be like, Hey, what are you? I'm like, I'm your teacher. <laughs> and, um, also I just, I felt like everyone, like teachers were married, so I just put Mrs. B. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so I, I did a lot. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm wary of, you know, not having something to, to do. But I don't know. I don't think I'm going to go into, like, a whole new career. I don't... You I don't, don't have to. Thank you. Yeah, you right, actually yeah. stressed me out for okay. a moment. I was okay. like, what am I going to do next? <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I, one career is usually enough for most people, but already you're on six or seven. I'm just wondering if you... No, I think I'm, I, I feel, I feel, I feel good. You feel good. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I, I think it's okay. I, I think you've... you've but I was good. in my head like, oh my gosh, what's my resume look like yeah. right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, w- one of the things that, that I find that's interesting is that you talk about, um, about Corinne and about in heaven's Corinne. I'm just saying for her. Yeah. No, just so just actually last night, I will say that the, the, um, the announcer got Corinne's name right. And, but then pronounced it Jeanette. Oh, (laughs) which excuse me. Yeah. So Corinne is fine. That's good. That's, that's okay. Um, is that when, when she, you said that, that with, um, bikini kill really created, um, a lot of space is she, she kind of took a lot of the bullets for being a female rocker and that you felt very grateful that you didn't have to fight for that yourself. Um, and the, it's 20 years later now, I think. And, and I'm wondering, do you still feel like you have to fight for it? Do you, are you interested in fighting for it? I'm just curious about the last 20 years and maybe your, your relationship to it and how, how, you, how you see it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think, uh, you know, whenever you feel like there have been, you know, certain, like, you know, people have made inroads or um, that this, the idea of something being an anomaly or special or there's sort of this asterisk around, you know, women in music or then all of a sudden it's women in comedy or it's women in politics mm-hmm. or it's women in chairs. <laughs> you know, it's just like there's... Women are in all these places and and people have so many questions about why they're there and, and 
you know, they have to spend like 11 hours in front of a Benghazi hearing, you know, or whatever. Like, it's just... (laughs) So, I mean, I think there's that, but then, but then I think the the bigger question is, is just, I, I, I will always feel, um, like a, a, a striving for, you know, just, I guess, you know, I think when you, when you look out in the world, it's hard not to feel a discomfort, um, that, you know, I want to be compassionate or to placate or to assuage or to be able to comment on things that still feel, um, unjust to me. And I, I think so whether it has to do with, you know, sexism or racism or transphobia, like all these things that I think continue, they're all related. So I, I, you know, and, and I think it's, um, it can be pernicious to sort of feel like, okay, well, we've made it. And then you look around and you realize, well, once you're sitting at the table, who else isn't there? Or by desiring that, who have we sort of lopped off? And, you know, so I guess that quest for me is, that's always, I guess, part of a, a dialogue. But yeah, the, the question of women in seems to be mm-hmm. perennial. Perennial. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many things I'm looking at, like women in shoes, women with microphones, right. <laughs> like women in audiences. Um, you got you to gotta explain why you're there. Yeah. There's a, there's a great line. Um, when, when, you were opening, um, when you were opening for um, the John Spencer Blues Expo- <laughs> Explosion, um, which is a very handsome... Um, uh, handsome blues band, um, and and you refer to them as self-referential, which was funny because I remember a long time ago going to see Bob Odenkirk, and he would do a big um, uh, parody of them where they they would he I guess apparently in the middle of their songs they would just start saying John Spencer's Blues Explosion. <laughs> yeah. They would just repeat yeah. the name of their band. Yeah, I thought that was very diplomatic that you refer to them as self-referential because. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and apparently that when you were backstage, all the, all the, uh, bouncers were trying to hustle you guys off because they didn't know who you were. And then Corin took the, Corin, right? Thank you. Took, took the stage. And, uh, and she started your opening set by saying, we're not here to fuck the band. We are the band. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love that. So, so you're going to go on tour soon. Yeah. I mean, we've, yeah, we've, we toured been, on, on and off this year. You've been on tour, but you're about to start another leg? <clears throat> yeah, in December. And are you excited about that? I am excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean that seriously. I, I know I'm very excited. We're, um, some shows in the Midwest and then, and then a bunch of shows in New York. You, in, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal um, interview, you talked about how sad it is the thought of going on stage without feeling the burning desire to perform and how that's like one of the saddest things you can imagine as a performer. Um, but there've got to be days where you don't feel like performing. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, and, and then what do you do? I guess is right. the, the, what I'm asking is kind of how do you deal with that? Cause people, you have bad days. Right. I mean, I think the, the great thing about music or performance of any kind is that you're able to channel that frustration or that lassitude or whatever you're feeling into the show. And then you also have the audience, which is what's the best part of the, of the live show, is that 
you know, whatever you're feeling is, is being met and matched or uh, at odds with the audience. And so you're able to kind of dance with that a little bit and toy with it, and it can bring out something in you. And I also like being able to use frustration. And then you have all these songs, and within the container of those songs, depending what they're about, you know, you can sort of revisit different emotions through that. And so usually by the, not even by the end of the show, but the middle or even the first third, you, you find that, you know, you, I guess you use it. You find a way mm-hmm. to use it. So it never, it never feels like a burden. Also, tour, as I describe in the book, is very monotonous. So, I mean, you're really just living for that hour and a half on stage. So it's, it's hard not to love it when you get, when you get up there. Do you ever feel like you've had the ultimate show? Is there, have you ever gotten off stage and you think every single moment of that show was, was it? No. I mean, I, it's, no. I, it's, I mean, from the inside, there's always, that, there's always that critic. You know, I mean, I think overall, yeah, we've, I've, I've, I have felt pretty great. But we'll, we'll still dismantle it and be like, well, you know, that song, yeah, we played it a little slow. Um, I had the same, uh, this, never mind. I was going to say that I ha- have actually had this discussion with Mick Jagger and that's true. Oh yeah. Come on. Tell us more about that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> One time. <laughs> oh man. Um, this was such a weird night. We were in New York and we had a, a bunch of us had gone and seen the Rolling Stones. I mean, this is not, obviously this is not like 1968. <laughs> this is like. 2014 (laughs) and um we and you know we saw you know they have so many hits and um at this point it's like they all sound great because they all sound familiar which is I think how often the audience interprets it and that's how I am as an audience member I don't you know if I see a band and they play the song I love like I'm not tearing it to shreds because you know somebody messed up the chorus by like you know, one half note or something. Yeah, I'm just enjoying it. So um, I was really surprised how much I just was like, oh my God, there's so many great songs. And then afterwards, he was just sitting around in, in sweats watching cricket. And um, <laughs> and we said, uh, you know, we were like, man, you know, Jumping Jack Flash, all these songs sounded great. And he just was like, no, they didn't. They didn't. I was, and I was so shocked. And I was just like, this, I, but I was also so relieved because I was like, even on this level, mm-hmm. Like he's, but did he care? It didn't sound like no, he, he cared that absolutely much. cared. But okay. he was just—it was the same thing of like me just being a fan and being like, "Oh, everything was great," and him just thinking as a performer, like, "Nah, you know, not everything was great tonight. You know, satisfaction wasn't that good." Or, <laughs> and and I was like, "Wow, this is." I, I actually found it very reassuring because, and then I was like, "I just—that's why it's great to be a fan because you don't you don't care about that when you're a fan. You know, when you're on the other end, then you're yeah." And the audience Critical. does have so much to do with it because the little bit of performance I know that sometimes you're, you think you're like really hitting it and the audience just doesn't seem to be aware that they're in the, <laughs> in the yeah, presence no, of something really special. Yeah, no, right? So it has to, it, it, like a lot of times you bring it and maybe you feel like, hey, aren't they, in, aren't they witnessing this? You know, aren't they, in the, aren't they in the room with me here? No, or, that... Or they, or they freak out over what you think is like a bad show. Yes, There's a, there is a major disconnect. I, mm-hmm. I agree. It's, and that, that's very intense. And for it to all come together is rare, especially those, the two components of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, is, it is rare. <laughs> I, was, I just like something. that idea of that you're just like, I'm nailing it, I'm nailing it. <laughs> And then that, this is like an impassive audience. Yeah, passive. <laughs> That's why, you know what? 
But that goes back to the blues explosion uh-huh. thing. You just uh-huh. say your name. If you keep saying your name, <laughs> it just Maria Simple. Uh-huh. Just <laughs> over and over. <laughs> I was a big deadhead, so I, I um, saw maybe certainly in the hundreds of dead shows, so I know nothing but seeing terrible shows in the audience. <laughs> yeah. To be a deadhead is to see a lot of shitty shows strung together. But uh, but but there are times when I uh, there but were. It's, it's there not were about the music though. No, it's not no. about the music. <laughs> I was the only one without a tie dye sitting there just looking really disgusted with the band the entire. I was a very odd kind of deadhead. But but I but there were times when I'd realize, oh my God, I'm seeing the best Jack Straw ever right now. And it was true. History bore me out that then on the chat boards it was that was the best Jack Straw ever. Whoa, deep cut yeah. chat boards, Jack yeah. Straws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so now uh Portlandia, where are we with Portlandia? Sorry, we're getting off this. Okay. <laughs> You're killing it right now. They're just like, woo! So where are we with Portlandia? Uh, <laughs> um, we just finished, we filmed season six this last summer, and that um, is being edited. It's pretty, it's crazy. Yeah. And are you still loving it? I love it. I, I kind of can't believe it that we're, we still get to do it, and we get to change it up every year. I mean, now it's barely the, a sketch show. It's just like a weird half-hour comedy. Yeah. Slash, this year it's maybe more of a drama a little oh, bit. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, and it's mostly improvised, is that correct? It's becoming a little less improvised because we've gone in a more narrative route. Mm. So we have to have scripts and we have to have arcs and beats in every scene but um we still improvise a lot of the dialogue and do you have a are you a notebook person do you carry a notebook around with you and then you jot down ideas for portlandia throughout the year when you're not on the show and yeah yeah i have a notebook or i use (laughs) the notes feature of my phone oh i see that that's what the kids are doing now yes I was disheartened when someone read their Tony's speech off of their iPhone. I felt that was yeah. not okay. I know. I yeah. I actually am going. Um, I I'm going to this wedding soon, and a bunch of us are being asked to speak. And I actually said none of us can have our iPhones out. Like we cannot read. Seriously, that has to be said now. Yes, it has okay. to be said. <laughs> I was like, if you're reading a, a poem by Rumi, you cannot. <laughs> it, wow, can't be on the phone. Um, and so Portland loves you, right? I think so. I don't yeah. know. I mean, yes, I, I feel love there. Um, mm-hmm. If they hate me, they're saying that not to my face. Um, I feel I, I, Portland is, is a wonderful city, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they love you. Okay, I think we should do some, um, some questions from the audience. I think we're just going to just rock and roll it here, uh, which is you raise your hand and I call on you. That, okay. Say what? Yeah, so let's talk more about Olympia because you know what's interesting. You why wow, you just let someone just go free balling out there. I know. <laughs> what do you want me to say about Olympia? It's the state capital. I know what I want to ask you. You talk about those the, the house, the haunted house or the punk house that you moved into. Is that what it was? 
Oh, it had three names. It was called the, hun- the Haunted House, the Blue House, the Punk House. There was the Lucky Seven House. There was the Red House. Um, you know, these punk houses, they had, they had monikers that sometimes were based on the, the paint color. Lucky Seven House was near like a Lucky Seven convenience store. Um, these were terrible places. Do they, you think they're still there? No, I mean, I, I assume they've, yeah, you're, yeah, you live in, you're living in one of those right now. Um, I mean, I think they still exist. I, like a, a group, a group house, um, you know, where people, there's just like a towel that's wet 24 seven, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so gross. Um, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't regret that, that time. I'm glad I, I lived through it. I mean, I lived in a duplex where one of the rooms was the garage and someone just made a, a bedroom out of that with a, sh- with, sh- Four sheets and... Yeah. Um, it's a weird thing in the Pacific Northwest, the daylight basement that I never experienced. Oh, there's, there was no California. daylight in this oh, basement. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be up to code. I mean, okay. I, think the, I think the fire department requires like a certain egress that's like three feet, but mm-hmm. no, this was just moldy. And um, yeah, the basement that we practiced in with uh, Slater Kinney, there was a dead possum in the wall for the while. Oh, <laughs> Um, here's a microphone. Actually, it's in the middle. Is Sorry, that was not anything about Olympia, but... Want to jump up? There's a microphone waiting for your question. Is everyone too shy? Just shout it out, I guess. Okay, shout out. Yes. Okay. So, I know about the Dig Me Out tour because my son drove you guys. Your son drove us? Who? Tim? Yeah. Tim Holman? Oh, I love Tim. He's in the book. Tim's in the book, and um, I, I see Tim whenever I am in uh, Kentucky. What I heard from a, about it from a mother's perspective. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. I'm so Yeah, Tim. Oh, it was a slap. Okay, well, I'm glad it was only a slap. I feel like, uh, yeah, Tim. Tim tried to intervene when a bunch of women wanted to dance naked on stage, um, and uh, Tim was our only. He was every. He was our roadie. He was our merch guy. Um, he was our friend. And uh, when he tried to intervene, yeah, he got hit. Hit. Um, <laughs> And uh, not by us, but by the, the bouncer. Uh, that's funny that, but yeah, m- when my dad read the book, and there's a lot about my dad in it, but his main concern was the squalid conditions uh, that we stayed in. <laughs> that, and he was... I know, I'm so sorry. We didn't know. We didn't know. Um, my dad was also worried about the... Um, he wanted to double-check... Uh, whether we had shared a credit card during my trip to Australia. Um, it was all fiduciary. That was all he was worried about. Just Sorry, Dad, he's here. I'm just kidding. He also said he really loved it. <laughs> okay, question. Yes. I was recently in Portland, and I uh, was speaking to someone who said that they were in charge of some big uh, steampunk group there. And so I asked them, you know, hey, are you familiar with the Portlandia skit uh, involving the steampunk convention? He said, one, yes, two, it caused the greatest schism he's ever seen in the steampunk Portland scene. 
Uh, were, were you aware of the uh, of this? T- no. Um, well, I mean, what? So I feel like there's just like a tin submarine that's like moving on one side, and like a bazooka gun on the other. I don't know. I don't. What is the steampunk schism? I. I will get. I will get in the middle. Let me get in the middle of that. That sounds very healthy. Okay. <laughs> I just you, imagine you've done enough damage. What I imagine I is yeah. two people with monocles fighting. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Next question. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Um, so it seems like everything you've been involved with, you've had such creative control over. Um, but now you're on Transparent, which is amazing, and you're an actress. What's that like? Well, I mean, yes, on Transparent, uh, I don't have... uh, You're right, I don't write on that show, but it's very freeing, actually, to um, work with someone like Jill Soloway or or all the amazing writers on that show. They allow uh, such risk-taking in the performances, and... Um, I, I really enjoy uh, not being part of the creative process and just working on and focusing on this, the scenes and the, the character. That, to me, is, has been wonderful uh, because it's different. But I feel fortunate that I'm working with someone um, who I really believe in, and I really love that show. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So I'm a writer, and I was really interested with your relationship with writing throughout the course of your life and your creative journey, I guess, because it seemed like music was that thing that initially was like, okay, wow, I really need to do that. But through music, you were writing all the time, and especially those letters that you wrote to celebrities (laughs) in your childhood, that really resonated. So I just was interested in your your relationship and how you think music and writing and creativity kind of just all meld together. I would consider writing the, the through line and, and the commonality between all, all the things. I'm, I've always been interested in reading and I've been a very um, avid reader and, and writing has, I think, been my main way of ex- expressing myself. I I love words and I love, I've always had uh, epistolary friendships and really, you know, before email, really enjoyed writing letters back and forth with my closest friends and sort of having that as document of... And Jeannie of, Francis of General Hospital. Yes, I, I wrote a pretty long letter to um, Jeannie Francis. <clears throat> she, uh, so first she was on General Hospital. Um, do you guys remember Luke and Laura? You know what's crazy? Do you know how they met on the show? He, oh, yeah, he, he raped, raped her. her on yeah. a dance floor. Hello, I know. And then Everything they got married. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> this was the 80s. This was the 80s. And that is insane. Um, and then the show kept going. Yeah. People were like, oh, this is... A... And people, they were people's favorite couple. Yeah, totally. um, it's, and th- but I didn't discover her until she was on Days of Our Lives. Because um, I... <laughs> Today, actually, at the grocery store, there was a Days of Our Lives um, commemorative issue, and I was like, it's still the same people on that show. They must be like 150, um, and they look amazing. They do. The, yeah. And I wrote, anyway, I wrote a letter to Jeannie Francis. Um, she did not write back, mm-hmm. but other people, <laughs> other people from other soap operas did. 
Um, but that, I still love Jeannie Francis. And if she showed up right now in this room, I would be very excited. Um, she's not going to. So don't, don't get excited. Back to the drudgery of this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so thanks. Somehow we got onto Jeannie Francis, and uh, I hope that summed it up for you. Yes. yes. That's everything. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, can I ask you a political question? Uh, political, sure. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of us were in our teens and 20s and playing basement shows, right? And wanted to figure out how to change the world from there, and then a lot of us are now in our, like, 30s and 40s, not playing basement shows and still trying to figure out how to change the world, right? So, I don't know, how, has your job description changed? Has your politics changed because you're in a different spot? Um, I mean, I feel like I talked about it a little bit earlier. I mean, I think my intentions are still the same. I mean, Slater-Kinney, you know, people put the, in the identifier of politics on our band, and that was intrinsic to our music, but always we wanted to be considered a band. You know, that was the most important thing to us. And even though um, that was inseparable from our politics, uh, we, it only mattered because we wrote, I think, good records. You know what I mean? Like in the, in the realm of creativity, I don't think people remember bands whose songs they don't like. And they're, they, you can't divorce that. Um, like, oh, that they were a great political band with shitty songs. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think, uh, I think my aims as a, a creator are to, to make, uh, music that people feel, uh, passionate about, um, and, uh, a show that people feel a sense of kinship with, um, and in my own life, try to be a good person and a compassionate person and to work towards things. But I, I don't think you can just parcel that out and, and have um, the politics sort of just sitting there divorced from uh, good, good content. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a guitar question. Okay. Um, I really love the tone at the beginning of Modern Girl. Uh-huh. And I was wondering, um, what guitar did you use? <sighs> I know it's like a while back, but and all all your guitars tones sound awesome, but that one in particular. Is no, just no, thanks. Really great. I'm I'm um I love questions like this, by the way, because it's so. Uh, I've been wanting. To, I've been like longing to ask. No, you I this. love. Yeah. <laughs> um. I feel like I'm I'm trying. I'm really trying to. I would imagine that I played my 1972 SG on that. Um, and I'm trying to think what amp. Well, you know, Dave Fridman just made it. He like corrupted and degraded the sound really intensely. Um, but I'm pretty sure I played it through a, a super reverb. And I don't know what what pedals I used. It's been so long. But de- it was definitely the the SG and a and a super reverb. But I'm not sure the effect. There's not a lot of effects on there. I mean, just a little distortion, maybe a. a Klon pedal, you know, which is basically like amp overdrive yeah. in a pedal. Um, yeah, but really with, with Dave Fridman in the woods, I mean, you can't discount Dave as basically a, a scientist who got in there and, and made that album sound like it did. Yeah. Well, I love that as a band, you guys always, like, 
like you're political, but you also were expressive and grew musically and sonically. And I think that really underscores like the message. It's like when you also just grow with your art, like that in itself speaks a lot. So cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> That's cute. Hi. Hi. Um, so I was just thinking about how important to me when I think about starting something creative and something sort of filling a void where something hasn't been and how there's always an element of vulnerability there. And I'm just curious how, how that element of vulnerability has affected you and your creative process and how important you think it has been. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, Vulnerability is is one of the scariest spaces to be in, uh, personally or uh, creatively, uh, because you feel so porous. And I think um, your I think your natural um, reaction or defenses is to kind of shut yourself off from that kind of openness. And um, I would kind of describe um, my process uh, in terms of getting to a place where vulnerability really. Uh, was important and actually I could use it without just being so scared. Um, when I when I first when I was younger, there was a much more, a greater sense of detachment, and I felt like there was almost a power from kind of sitting back and you know kind of looking at things and, and not participating or not sort of being in an emotional uh, the emotional realm of something. And I kind of felt like I would sort of walk into a room like headless with, you know, holding my hand out, my head in front of me with a big smile on it. And <laughs> there's just such a disconnect between that. And I think through with the band and, and through Portlandia, what I aimed for was to put the head back on the body even if it wasn't wearing a smile. Um, that just seemed like... Uh, more holistic and, and just a truer way of being. So I think it's, it's about um, being okay with, with faults and contradictions and, and finding a way to express that. I, George Saunders, a novelist I really like, um, you know, he talks about staying uh, constantly confused. You know, he's like, be, stay confused, be so open that it hurts. And he talks about contradiction. He's like, Put contradiction in the same cage and let it vibrate. And I just think, yes, do it. That's the way to stay vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, one more question? Okay. 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 Sorry. This Sorry. is the last question. This has to be. And then we have a reading. A lot of Thank responsibility. Well, uh... Yes, a lot of responsibility. This has to be an amazing question. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Well. It can be whatever you want. It can be whatever you want. You can ask what, what these chairs feel like. No, no, no. <laughs> no not, not that much. It's about living off of who you are, because I don't know if most, but many of us have a job and has to be eight hours a day or 12 hours a day doing something that is just not meaningful. And also there's no space for vulnerability. And... Then we ended up craving for finding a time to connect and be who you are. Great question. Shit. (laughs) Okay, thank you for for that question. So, living off who I am? Mm -hmm. That's called going out on a laugh. Yeah. That question. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Living... um, 
That's an intense question. It's very, uh, it's, it's like an ontological question. Um, I, I mean, I feel like I answered it kind of in the last question a little bit. I mean, trying to connect and s- I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I just, I feel like um, I, we all, I, I think, work hard. I feel like I aim for a sense of, um, I don't want to be a divided self and I try to surround myself with, with people and inspiration that, that, um, helps me feel seen, you know? And I think that, uh, one of the most important things in, in life, no matter what you're doing is to both be forgiving of, of yourself in terms of surrounding yourself, um, with people that, uh, that make you aware of existing in the here and now. I, I just don't wish for anybody to feel partial or small. Like that to me is so um, debilitating. And uh, so, you know, I just f- desire for no one to feel a sense of uh, self-effacement or erasure. Or, um, and you kind of have to help, have people around you that, that help you do that, no matter what you're doing. And I think if you feel, if you um, surround yourself with people that don't allow you to feel small, then um, then you have a sense of self, hopefully, and you can be creative even when you're, you know, working eight hours a day, like you said, and, and feel connected. You have to feel connected with yourself first. I think that's that's the main thing. You 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 have to find a means of of connecting with who, with who you are, and not and not shutting off. So don't. Don't hang out with people that, that let you feel shut off, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. And, and this, this leads into our final reading. Um, and, and before, um, before um, Carrie reads this, I'd like to remind everybody that you got a um, book with the price of admission and that the books can be picked up um, outside on the table. So I hope everyone um, get, gets their books. All right. Um, Man, I, that was a heavy question there at the end. Um, <laughs> very metaphysical. Um, but hopefully this will address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go. Long ago, I stopped focusing on performing for the sake of my family, but instead performed in spite of it, away from it, to get out. The bottomless urge I had to entertain as a child had sent me headstrong and hurling myself into rooms, hoping I'd arrive in time to delay or minimize the breakage. Cop, coach, clown. A one-girl Greek chorus there to protect, instruct, and delight. But there is no one I could really save but myself. That's what I mean when I say Slater Kinney was my rescue and salvation. It was the first time I felt I could be vulnerable in my creativity in which the emotional and psychic stakes were neither futile nor self-annihilating. That unlit firecracker I carried around inside me in my youth, eager to ignite it at the slightest provocation, to detonate my whole being and fill the room in a glowing spectacle, found a home in music. My restlessness and unease was matched by my fellow miscreants, bandmates, collaborators, and audiences alike but more crucially by a warmth and sustenance. In Slater Kinney, each song, each album built an infrastructure, fresh skeletons. These at last were steady bones. Now performing was no longer about trying to harness a cursory attention or to be a distraction. 
Slater Kinney allowed me to perform both away from and into myself, to leave and to return, forget and discover. Within the world of the band, there was a me and a not me, a fluctuation of selves that I could reinvent along the flight between perches. I could at last let go. For so long, I had seen the lacking I'd been handed as a deficit. My resulting anxiety and depression were ambient, a tedious lassoing of air. But with Slater Kinney, I stopped attempting to contain or control the unknown. I could embrace the unnamed and the in-between. I could engage in an unapologetic obliteration of the sacred. Singularities had always been foreign to me, and where and who I came from was rife with dualities, a mesh of conflicted and diluted selves attempting to cohere, failing on account of an inarticulate denial. Fortunately, music granted me both an allowance of and a continual engagement with the ineffable. I also, for once, felt a part of something. The inexplicable is its own form of freedom. Belonging is not a form of restriction. We can't name the feeling, but we can sing along. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Thank you for coming. Have a good night. That's it for this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This event took place at STG's Neptune Theater on November 6, 2015. Thank you again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum. Mm-hmm.